Welcome to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese. Gary Scheiman added his musical touch to the first two Bioshock games developed by 2K, now known as Irrational Games. In Bioshock, your player, Jack, is thrust into an underwater dystopia named Rapture in the year 1960. Inside Rapture, Jack encounters intelligent human beings who've gone crazy from taking a drug called Adam. Rapture is colorful and beautiful, but also very dangerous and scary. To musically paint this complex world, Gary used 20th century techniques like aleatoric music and concrete music. Aside from winning numerous awards for both his Bioshock scores, Gary's music from these games, as well as his music for the game Dante's Inferno, was recently performed live by a full orchestra at California State University, Northridge. Composer Gary Scheiman, welcome to Top Score. The Bioshock games are a little scary for me. I hope I contributed to your fear factor. If yeah, that's what uh, I was supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would say you contributed quite uh, adequately to my fear factor. Okay. So, in speaking of the world in which those first two games in the Bioshock series takes place, is terrifying. It's a terrifying place called Rapture, and so I would like for you to describe what Rapture's original intent was and what it became. And then how did that influence your music? Well, I don't know if I'm the expert on Rapture because that would be Ken Levine and Irrational Games, the folks who made the game. But I know, I mean, basically they hired me to make Rapture scarier and uh, and more intriguing and just to fill out the, this whole world to give it another dimension. described to me as, as a really insane, crazy place. But it was also described as a really interesting place because uh, if you know anything about this backstory of uh, Bashak, um, an industrialist uh, designs, believes that the world is really not a great place and designs a city. Imagine New York City at the bottom of the uh, North Atlantic and uh, really creates it as a utopia for artists and creative people and workers and, you know, technologically impossible, especially in the 40s when it was supposedly constructed. But nevertheless, it has this sort of really interesting intellectual backstory, which I found really intriguing as I, as I thought about how the music should sound. And of course, what happens is the unexpected, where they find this, uh, this drug in a sea slug of all places, that actually makes people, at least initially, stronger, more intelligent. I mean, it's a human enhancer in every respect, but eventually they go crazy from taking the drug, they become deformed, and the drug trade becomes uh, everything to the, to the people of Rapture, and this world sort of uh, decays into a civil war, essentially, and it becomes a nightmare. People are killing one another, um, every attempt to sort of stop it fails, People are all hyped up and become monstrous from this a drug called Adam. So essentially, when you, the player, arrive in this city, it's pretty horrific. So 
the backdrop is this sort of really beautiful Art Deco city that's mm -hmm. just bloodstained you know, and yeah. horrific. And, and there's all these uh, people called, they call them splicers. Essentially, this atom splices their, their uh, basic uh, DNA and makes them strong and intense, but eventually monstrous, and they lose their minds. And So you're entering as a dystopian a city, actually, that you could possibly imagine, mm -hmm. and you're entering uh, just sort of this nightmare world, and you have to try to escape. And you're sort of led through this journey by this one individual who turns out not to be who he initially says he is. And uh, at the same time, there's a backstory that you only find out by playing through the game. Mm -hmm. um, so from a composer standpoint, I was just intrigued by all that. That just sounded fa fantastic to me. and what the music should sound like, um, I started to experiment with uh, different styles and combining different styles of music, including music from the early 20th century, because it seemed like there was this whole intellectual component, even though Bioshock could be played on a number of levels. It could, just, it could be for an individual who just wants to go in and have a good time and shoot things and use these powers that you get because you take Adam yourself mm -hmm. and just have fun. Or you could really sort of enjoy it on a number of deeper levels. So I, I went for the, the deep level, at least in the associations that I could make with the music. Ken Levine said something really interesting to me early on. He goes, look, and no one knew whether that game was going to be successful or not. Certainly didn't expect the success that, that came, which was amazing. Yeah. But um, he just said, look, we're going to go for it. We're not going to hold back creatively. We're just going to make this amazing game. And uh, I don't want to dumb it down. I want everyone to put their greatest creative and artistic efforts forth. So that gave me a license to really try some unique things, at least for the time at that time, three or four years ago now. It included using music from the early 20th century styles and um, using uh, aleatoric uh, elements. And for those who aren't familiar with that, that's basically um, allowing the the orchestral musicians to improvise and create uh, within a very sort of designed improvisation mm -hmm. where they're given a direction and it creates some very eerie and very scary sounds from the orchestra, not, not your typical scales and such, you know. So um, there was that element. And then there was also some, some of this uh, style of music from the 40s called Musique Concrète, which was the style of taking real world sounds and, uh, you know, like whether it's whatever you recorded from from a, a car to any, any any kind of a sound from the real world and creating these sound montages. So that also became an element within it. And But by sort of uh, putting all three of these styles together, it created something fairly interesting, I think, and uh, certainly different from the typical uh, video game score.
One of the things that, that I really was drawn into by your music is, I think in many ways, the same thing that drew me into Rapture, which is when you're in Rapture, it is terrifying, but it's beautiful. You're underwater and the world itself was designed to be a beautiful city with beautiful lights and beautiful theaters and all of these things, but it's still terrifying. And I felt like that was how you wrote that music. It was scary music, but it was beautifully scary. It wasn't ugly scary. Thank you. Uh, And I think, yes, that was my intention to have this sort of beauty to it. And also I think the licensed music uh, meaning the the songs that were licensed uh, mm-hmm. from the era also played into that aesthetic as well where you you would have uh, how much is that doggy in the window that that old song <laughs> playing while you're killing yes or the nutcracker or something right. like that yeah exactly with the nutcracker when you're you're trying to kill um, splicers or that's when they're trying to kill uh, Sander Cohen. Yep, yep. Yes, which is one of my favorites in the game. So yeah, it, it it just created lots of contrasts, and it really was fun to do. It was sort of intellectually fun as a composer who has a classical bent and studied concert music and and have written some and uh, and 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 loves you know that kind of music to really kind of just go I'm just going to be creative here and really have have a blast and it was really fun it was really fun to take these sort of really dissonant sort of atmospheric sounds aleatoric or whatever was mm-hmm. um, generating them sometimes it was some synthesizers synthesized sounds and then to use to to, to write some solo violin uh, lines over them or cello solo mm-hmm. cello lines and I, have, of course, I had a great violinist, Martin Shalaforo, who, who is the principal concertmaster of the LA Phil, right? Uh, playing all that, and so it was. It, it, it and then he he came in and recorded for a day, and uh, he brought a, a Stradivarius, and as, I was mm. like, I was going, "What is that violin? That is awesome sounding." He goes, "It's a Strad." I go, "Oh, oh crap! That's great. That's, <laughs> that's cool. Worth more than I'll ever see in my entire life." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, and, and yeah, that actually segues nicely because you have had the opportunity to work with some really amazing musicians on the Bioshock games and on Dante's Inferno, and you got to record in some pretty magnificent studios as well. So I'm, I'm sure that without saying that was a magnificent experience, but why do you think that game developers are choosing to invest so much in the music? Well, I think they realize that it it's, it adds a, a really strong component. I, I think that's why. I think it 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 adds something valuable. Just as films uh, spend quite a bit of money on on the score, it's it's a really important feature. You know, look if you're spending twenty five or thirty million dollars developing a game, um, a few hundred thousand dollars on the score is not hmm. that big of of the percentage of that budget, and it can add a lot of atmosphere and and creating sort of an iconic uh, design element that can really enhance the experience. So I, I think it works and the players love it and appreciate it. It just helps you immerse yourself in this experience and mm-hmm. it helps uh, you connect emotionally to what's going on in some really interesting ways. You know, there is something really uh, mystical, magical. I mean, I've thought about this for many years why music has this sort of amazing effect when we um, when we see some visual in a movie or in a video game and we hear music and it sort of connects everything on, on some level where it's like it creates some third thing 
that's inex really truly inexplicable. I, I don't. I've never heard anyone explain it really well. <laughs> why, why we evolved in this way, mm -hmm. but we did, and we 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 have it, and it's. Uh, and I'm I'm happy that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. first Bioshock game, we're introduced to this unique relationship between the big daddies and the little sisters. And just being aware of, as I was thinking about how to word this question, people who don't know what that means might think it's really odd. But in fact, the big daddies are these humans, right, that have been genetically kind of fused with, with these big submersible suits, and they have to protect the little sisters. And so it's just this very interesting relationship that the two, they're always together, or usually always, of course, um, together, and the big daddy protecting the little sister from any harm because she's completely defenseless. And I felt like the poignancy of that relationship, the intimacy of that relationship is also somewhat reflected in your music. There are just some very, very intimate moments that you captured very well in the score that coincide with these moments between the the big daddy and the little sister. Well yeah, and and you, one one important critical element, the little sisters are gathering Adam from the dead. Right. Which is so that they're actually being used for commercial, they're being sort of used and abused for commercial purposes. They're yep. very vulnerable, but uh, I forget there's some details about why little girls are valuable. And so they they're sort of zombied out and doing whatever <laughs> they're supposed to do and then they're being protected by these big uh, monstrous uh, big daddies who can really, you know, kill anything that comes near them to, mm -hmm. to protect them. So it's a, it, it's sort of like this monstrous <laughs> commercial enterprise. But they, of course, become very close and dependent upon one another. And and so yeah, it, it does. It, it's an opportunity to create music that is sympathetic and that can have uh, an element of of sympathy and. Uh, and maybe sadness and poignancy because there's no happy music. They're, they're only, they're only, the only happy-ish music is at the very end of the game if you've played as a good player. You haven't been mm. killing the little sisters when you grab them and mm -hmm. um, kill the big daddy because you have a choice. You have some moral choices in Bioshock. You have to kill the big daddies and you have to harvest the atom from the little sisters. It's just part of the game strategy. Mm -hmm. So you can choose to save the little girls or you can choose to get more atom and basically destroy them, you know. And so if you've chosen throughout the game to save the little sisters, then you get rewarded at the end with a happy ending a movie, essentially. <laughs> yep. There is a bit of music in that that has a sort of like a poignant, happy um, – uh, score that I got to write.
but the rest of the music is really more on the sad side when it was when it was wasn't being kind of scary and ominous uh, or or um I don't know the, the, there's a cue called Welcome to Rapture which is neither scary or I, I don't know it's certainly mm-hmm. is sort of a little eerie theme for Bashak is sad, and the reason I th- thought that would make sense to write this sort of sad, poignant music is because it's such a tragedy. I mean, I-, I just thought, you know, in a way, it's a-, a tragedy that we've seen many times in human history where some group or some leader has some big idea to create a utopia on Earth, and it usually ends up in some tragic outcome. So I, I saw that as sort of a tragic flaw in humanity. That was an underlying motif for the Bioshock games. You're listening to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese. My guest is Bioshock composer Gary Scheiman. For the first Bioshock, you got to write a standalone piece for piano. Oh, yes. Uh, that, there's a piece of music that uh, ends up getting called Cohen's Masterpiece. And, uh, yeah, I got asked by the um, audio director, whose name is Emily as well, mm-hmm. Emily Ridgway. So she says, okay, there's this character, Sander Cohen, and he you know, is sort of the overlord of this level. It was called the recreation deck um, when I was working on it. And he writes this piece of music and he sort of tortures this pianist who's playing it. (laughs) But (laughs) a little admission here, I didn't quite understand who Sander Cohen was when I wrote the piece. I didn't fully understand it. So I probably overwrote that piece of music. I thought he was a little more of an artist than, than I was just, than he was, ended up being. He's sort of a hack, really, in the end. And so I sort of wrote this piece that really would have required someone a little more intellectual, a little more serious about music um, for him. But Ken said, you know, it's a little wrong, but I like it so much, we'll just use it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever told that story before, but it's true. Uh, uh, Screw it, we're going to use it. And I really liked the piece. It was really fun to write because essentially it's what we call in films source music, meaning that it's not like uh, music that's just coming out of the walls. You know, that mm-hmm. there, there's really no reason for music 
It's a piece of music that uh, you see someone playing the piano, and you see Sander Cohen sort of instructing this character. I think his name is Fitzpatrick, and he's mm-hmm. in the end, he's unhappy with the performance, so he blows him up. <laughs> yes, in a big fiery flame, he does. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So... Um, so that's your introduction to that piece of music. It actually ended up getting used as background while you're on that level. You hear it in mm-hmm. different places just as background music. It sort of becomes a score at some point. Rachmaninoff piece on acid really is what it it sounds like, but it's it's magnificent, you know. Thank you, thank you very much. I was taking acid that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know what Just I mean. It's, it's very, so. very showy and very um, virtuosic. I mean, you definitely have to be one heck of a piano player to make it through that. So, yes, much like yes. you would be to play something by Rachmaninoff, but there's added, this added element of something isn't quite right here. Yes. Yes, no, I agree. And, I, and and that was part of my intention when I was writing. It was sort of like, okay, this is a very showy piece, but it's a little, a little twisted here. It was a lot of fun to write. I remember calling my agent, and everyone was really happy with it. And calling, and I feel like I'm I'm a real composer today. I actually really wrote some music because <laughs> I worked really hard on that piece of music, and like took me a couple of days or more, wow. two, maybe three days to, to to really kind of perfect it. Because mm-hmm. I started it, and I went, oh, I really like this. This is really cool. I'm going to send this to Emily, and I sent her like part of it. And she mm-hmm. goes, Oh, this is great. Keep going. And so I did, and then I so then I just finished it, you know, because mm-hmm. because they they were happy with it. I wasn't I didn't want to keep going if if they hated it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, it's too much work. If right. It's not going to get get used. Right. You know, a lot of people actually do learn it and put it up on YouTube. Dante's Inferno is a very aggressive game with lots of action. The pacing is completely different. I mean, it's a completely different game. It's a different genre, different objectives. Bioshock, you can truly move at your own pace if you choose. And Dante's Inferno, you're kind of shuttled along throughout the objectives. It's just a, a different type of gameplay. What was it like writing for games with such different pacing? Well, when I was asked to write Bioshock, they initially said, we don't really want any combat music. So my initial pass with orchestra and all that we had, there was no combat music. And it was only a couple of months after I'd finished that I got a call and said, would you, we want you to write some combat music. We do, <laughs> after all, we need some combat music. So they, they sort of brought me back in and I wrote fairly quickly, wrote like three or four pieces of combat music. On the other hand, Dante's Inferno was full of combat music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say at least sixty um, percent of the music that I wrote for it was combat, because you are always battling and, mm-hmm. and chasing and 
attacking and slashing and striking. Yes. I mean, just there is a huge difference. Writing combat music is, um, is it's a lot of work. It's just a lot of notes, you know. You know, it's really <laughs> seven what, levels of it. Yeah, <laughs> I scored every level of hell. <laughs> right. Maybe I don't have to go there now. I don't know, but um, <laughs> or if I do, I can bring my music with. God forbid. But in any event, um, it was a lot of combat music, and the scale was more epic and big, and you know these vast panoramas uh, that you see. I think they did such a great job on the artwork. It's just oh, this absolutely visual masterpiece, and so mm-hmm. I guess got to write these really wild, intense pieces of music. Um, I was listening to a lot of George Crumb. I don't know if you know his music. Oh but, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I was being influenced by George Crumb while I was writing that that score. Um, I don't think it sounds like George Crumb, but I, I just I, I liked. There was just something is something wild about some of Crumb's music, you know, unpredictable and and really 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 nice so yeah um, absolutely that, that was an influence as well also for Dante's Inferno there's a significant choral element involved did you enjoy or dislike implementing a choir with a score like that oh no it was fun it, uh, we had a great choir we went to London we recorded at Abbey Road Studios uh, with the Philharmonia Orchestra and uh, this uh, group called Metro Voices, which is just a great choir. I mean, we had a four-piece choir, and they came in, and they just nailed this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of sort of unusual techniques that I asked them to, to implement. That was one of the reasons we wanted to go to London, because the choirs there are really amazing. Yes, they are. Next to L.A., uh, you know, really every bit the equal is London. London has a fantastic pool of orchestra players and of mm-hmm. singers and several great studios, uh, especially the, uh, Abbey Road and Aaron Lindhurst are just great studios. So, you know, a lot of people do go there to, to record. I mean, L.A. is great as well. But but I had a fantastic experience uh, conducting at Abbey Road, and then we recorded the orchestra for two days and then the choir for two days. So that was all done separately, and then we had some solo singers that we recorded, and um, it, it was a great experience, it really was.
you've mentioned before that composers can't fake writing orchestral music. Uh, how do you feel that your classical training then enhances your work? It enhances it a lot. You can certainly take a string patch or a string samples and put your hands down and create chords. And, but generally, composers who don't have much training, it, it's, it shows, unless they're smart enough to hire orchestrators and people around them to kind of fill in their gaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have orchestrators, but basically I, I write every note. They may add a flute to something I didn't think of, and then I go, <laughs> okay, let's try that. Yeah, the flute would be good with that. Okay. The way you write music, the, the complexity, uh, the counterpoint, knowing how that should sound and work properly, knowing how to write for instruments, knowing where the instruments' ranges are to create the sound that you want to achieve, how to write aleatoric uh, music, all those sorts of things which are often outsourced by composers who don't know how to do it. I don't know how you fake it, you know, you really can't. So you mentioned you listened a lot to George Crumb for Dante's Inferno. Did you listen to anyone specific to help you get ready for Bioshock? You know, uh, I was listening to Berg, Berg's Violin Concerto. Oh, that's good stuff. It's just really a beautiful piece. And, and, I, and those sort of like angular lines for solo violin and cello that are in um, Bioshock, I think were influenced by Berg. That composition... Um, Welcome to Rapture, I was sort of thinking maybe Shostakovich or Bartok. You hear that music as you're descending for the first time in this bathosphere. You're going to eventually at some point out this little porthole, you see the city, which is a dramatic visual. But initially they said, you know, right, it, you're going to the scariest place on fr freaking earth, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they heard it and they go, you know, on second thought, I think we gave you the wrong direction. We don't want to sort of pre-warn everyone that this is scary. We want to intrigue them with this place. And I immediately said, you know, you're absolutely right. I didn't resent that at all. I go, we experimented with that. They actually ended up using that piece of music elsewhere. And so I started writing this piece, and I started with this sort of flowing, really fast-moving um, triplet sixteenths in the solo violin, because I thought of that as sort of like flowing water, really. Mm -hmm. And that piece just sort of unfolded, and they immediately loved it. They were said, "This is this is great. This is perfect." That piece has uh, kind of also become one of the more memorable works from that score, and has gotten performed all over the world, in Europe, um, Sweden, and Germany, and Denmark, and all, and, and throughout the United States by the Video Games Live concert.
I, I teach uh, one day a week at USC, and I, you know, I try to make sure that my students know is the more you know, the deeper your uh, skills are, the the more you'll be able to achieve. It, it just you just eliminate all these limitations that people who come to music with a very limited. Uh, not only limited skills, but a limited listening experience. They haven't mm-hmm. listened to a lot of music that could influence you and give you ideas about how to to write something really unusual. You're sort of limited by what's what's in the air right at that moment, and I think that's limiting. Gary, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure talking with you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I, I love the fact that you're in the, you do both classical music and you know, and that you appreciate video game music, of course. been listening to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese. Our technical director is Sam Keenan. We had additional technical support from Rob Byers. On the next episode of Top Score, we talk to Sean Murray, composer of the wildly successful Call of Duty Black Ops and Call of Duty World at War. Who's the audience for this? Uh, Minnesota Broadcast. You'll have to ask them because okay. they know more okay. than me. <laughs> Let me um, get you. They're not here. They're in Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Whoops. I just got unplugged there. Hello. Hi, Gary. I'm Emily. How much is that dog in the window? The one with the waggly tail. I do hope that dog